Welcome to the Tingo Investing Podcast, where we teach you how to make a better investment and retirement portfolio. Our goal is to explain everything from basic to advanced concepts in plain language that you can understand, whether you are a beginning investor or a professional. Get excited, listeners. We're going to synthesize everything we've learned in these past few episodes to create our first hedge fund strategy. And we're going to go over what a hedge fund is for those of us who may not know, and also what common misconceptions about hedge funds are. Now, if you haven't listened to the other episodes yet, that's okay, because this episode can be a good test to see if you need to brush up on anything. For the most part, though, this will be a very simple explanation, so relax and enjoy listening. Oh, and I even made an entirely new feature and initiative on Tingo in honor of this episode. Actually, I had this podcast all scripted out, and then I realized, you know what, I should just make this hedge fund tool for everyone. It'll help the podcast, it'll help people understand these new strategies, and it'll be a cool feature for professionals who already use this type of stuff. Anyway, so this is going to be a really fun episode, and I'm really excited about it, because it's so cool to realize, wow, these hedge fund strategies aren't as complex as some people make them out to be. Now, of course, some are. You can get complex in any industry. But for the most part, hedge fund strategies tend to be pretty accessible. There's almost like this myth. Uh, You see articles in the Wall Street Journal. I was reading one the other day that said uh, quants. They're known for being these mathematical geniuses and also known to be a little bit eccentric. And of course, you do meet eccentric people in finance. uh, But this whole idea that you have to be a chess master champions, all this sort of stuff, you have to be a PhD... Only in very few types of trading is that actually true. So once again, I consider this a really important episode because we're going to be discussing a lot of the metrics we've talked about and applying them in practical ways. This is also going to lead us to discuss new ideas like risk management and position sizing and what they mean. Now we're not going to go into these topics very deeply because these topics you can go on and on and there are whole fields of studies around like position sizing and how to make your best bets and that sort of stuff. But we're going to discuss how to think about them. We're going to discuss maybe things we didn't know we didn't know. And then we're also going to discuss criticisms of these hedge fund strategies that we're covering. And this this sort of thinking will give you sort of a look into how we should all view markets and claims made by individuals. I think one of the hardest things about learning how to invest or even being a professional is that it's very, very difficult to be able to separate the good stuff from the bad. And it's to nobody's fault. It just comes with experience and just sort of learning how to think about markets. So once we cover this strategy, we're also going to go into the criticisms of this strategy, and this will give a good glimpse into how to be the right amount of skeptical. And on to skepticism, so this is a story that actually upsets me quite often. And I used to, just to get right into it, used to work at a bank before I worked at a hedge fund. Now while I worked at this bank, there was a guy, uh, he was a managing director there. Now a managing director at a big bank is one of the most senior titles you can have at a bank before you get into CEO, CTOs, and you know very high-level management. In other fields, a managing director may be comparable to a principal, a partner, and so on. Point is, it's a very high title. Well, this MD, managing director, not medical doctor, was followed all across Wall Street because his research was really popular. But what the bank didn't advertise was that the this MD originally traded, but because he lost money for seven years straight, They no longer allowed him to trade with the bank's money and instead allowed him to publish research because it helps their relationships with clients. Another fun point to this story, of the people who read his research, half of them mocked him and used him as a joke of everything wrong in market analysis. This MD would literally take a 
a price graph, let's say Apple or something like that, and then he would just draw arrows to where he thought they were going. No other analysis. That's it. And then he would circle things and then just draw arrows from the circles to where he thought prices were going. So I rarely trash talk, as you know, in this podcast, but I bring up this example to highlight how important skepticism in financial markets is. Even if you think somebody is a pundit or brilliant or they work at this big brand name company, fact-checking is incredibly important. Misleading and misinformation is so dangerous because it means we can lose our money. It takes a lot of work to undo something we've been taught wrong. It's a lot easier to learn completely fresh than it is to unlearn something. So it's one thing if the misinformation or misleading is a genuine mistake and a person tried and gave it their best efforts. It's another if an institution knows a person has bad research yet still promotes them for sales. I will never stand for this and will continue to be vocal on this. So to recap, always be skeptical, even of me. Verify everything I say. You know, I try my best, but I am human. So if you think I'm wrong, please fact check me and then let me know if I was wrong. Now, if you don't think I'm wrong, then definitely fact check me. (laughs) That's an important lesson. Before we begin into the episode, let's move on straight into some Tingo announcements. This week, we've revamped the entire fundamental database for stocks. So the data is now structured in tables as well as as graphs. This data is a lot more accurate now, has more extensive coverage for over 3,500 companies, and it allows you to get a really good visual of how these sort of metrics have changed throughout time. Secondly, I've started the Tingo Labs initiative, which actually was sort of inspired by this podcast and conversations I've had with a few traders uh, in my office and that sort of stuff. But basically the idea behind Tingo Labs is that we're gonna create these one-off projects, these very high-end tools as sort of experiments to sort of like aid in our learning and also create tools that professionals also can find beneficial. And thirdly, we just added an entire new chat reputation system. This is something called a tinglet. You like my play on words? I do. I think I'm pretty clever. I think some of the best conversations though happen among friends when we talk to each other. But when you're having a conversation with somebody, whether maybe it's on Google Talk, AIM, or wherever you use to communicate, we may not have the best way to save them down. I know personally I copy and paste these chat conversations I have into Microsoft OneNote, which is actually now free and I I think is a great um, application. I copied it. I'm not, this is not a plug, by the way. I'm not advertising. I just think it's a cool product. But I just copy and paste it into this one notebook, but it's not really structured. And sometimes I'll have this great conversation with somebody. I'm like, man, this could really help a lot of people if they got to see in on our conversation. Well, that was the inspiration behind this thing called a tinglet. What a tinglet does is, and on the Tingo chat feature, is if you're having a conversation with a friend, you can click their username, you can select the chats that were really informative and a good conversation, and with a couple clicks of a button, you can actually share this entire chat with the world if you choose to. You can make it public, and the goal is is that you're making it public to help others who may have the same questions, may have the same thoughts. It's not about becoming a professional writer. This is not journalism. This is not be, you know, like a seeking alpha type product. This is truly about creating these sort of conversations and allowing them to exist in a permanent place on the internet so that other people can be involved in learning about what you're learning about. And that's the idea behind Tingo, active learning, promoting a great community of education, of powerful tools, and just of people trying to better themselves financially, no matter if you're a professional or just starting out. Anyway, to recap, uh, if you like the Tingo project, the mission, the podcast, the web app, and so on, please consider paying for Tingo at tingo.com forward slash support. That's T-I-I, 
ngo.com forward slash support. I have a pay what you can model so nobody is excluded from using these tools, the community, and so on. But in order to exist, we will need people to pay for the product. Anyway, let's move on now to our hedge fund strategy. I am so excited about this episode. Let's just get right into it. To begin, we need to discuss what a hedge fund actually is and how the news media often actually misinterprets what hedge funds do. And not all of them do. Actually, we'll be speaking with a very talented journalist in finance in the following week. But what is a hedge fund then? Well, a hedge fund's goal is to make money that's actually uncorrelated to other assets like stocks, bonds, and so on. Think of it as if you invested in real estate. If you bought a condo, you probably wouldn't compare it to stocks. In fact, many times people invest in property to build equity or to have investments besides stocks and bonds. So when you see a hedge fund compared to the S&P 500, it's actually a bit off because a hedge fund is trying to remain uncorrelated to the S&P 500. A hedge fund's goal is to make a slow, stable return or a return that is different than the S&P. So if the S&P is up 20%, a hedge fund may be up 10%. If the S&P is down 10%, you want the hedge fund still up to be, let's say, you want it to be up 10%, right? You want it to be consistent, stable, and that's what investors and hedge funds look for. So they see it almost as a separate asset class like you would in real estate. Now, of course, the confusing part about all of this is that hedge funds actually use stocks and bonds to be uncorrelated to stocks and bonds. And to do that, they create trading strategies that aren't necessarily intuitive at first, but as we'll see, they start to make sense, and you see that they're not that inaccessible. But that's why hedge funds become so confusing, and we want to compare it to the S&P 500. We see that a hedge fund is in this stock, we see that it's at Apple, so why wouldn't we be comparing it to the S&P 500? Well, the reason is, is that hedge funds employ these strategies and have tools that mutual funds, ETFs, or even the average person doesn't actually have. So to create these uncorrelated strategies to the stock market or bond market, a hedge fund will use different styles. They're considered active managers. You may see some hedge funds who say that they're more passive, but as a whole, they're actively trading. And one of the main tools that allows them to be uncorrelated to mutual funds, ETFs, the S&P, and and other stocks is they have a tool called leverage. This simply means that they can borrow money. If they have $10,000, they might be able to trade as if they had $50,000. They can also sell short, a topic we covered in the Q&A episode too if you want to learn more about how shorting works. Now, being able to short and having leverage differs significantly from mutual funds and index funds. They tend not to really use leverage in the same way, and also mutual funds and hedge funds don't, or mutual funds and ETFs don't actually sell short. Because of this, hedge funds are often classified as an alternative investment vehicle. If you go on a hedge fund's website, they may not say, hey, we're a hedge fund. In fact, they probably won't. They'll say, we're an alternative investment manager. And what they are is they're an alternative to investing in traditional assets like stocks and bonds. They manage money in what we consider non-traditional ways. For example, there are many types of hedge funds and each of them have a mandate. What a mandate specifies is that a hedge fund can trade in this style. Investors want to make sure a hedge fund isn't all over the place. Just like if you're an engineer, let's say you're an electrical engineer, you wouldn't want that electrical engineer necessarily working on building a bridge, right? You wouldn't want them designing the architecture of a bridge because they're specialized in one way. Typically, this is also true of hedge funds. So one type of hedge fund is called a long short equity fund, and this one may be the most confusing. 
So a long short equity hedge fund just invests long in stocks and short in stocks. For example, they may be long Apple, short Microsoft, whereas a mutual fund may just can only be long Apple or long Microsoft. Now, one confusing thing and often misinformation I see, you have sites that track something called a 13F filing. And what a 13F filing is that a hedge fund is required to disclose their long positions. And so you see some sites who look at the 13F filings and say, oh, this is what a hedge fund is doing. That is not true. Do not believe that. Run away when you see that. Because what a hedge fund doesn't have to do is they don't have to report their short holdings. So they can be long one stock. So you may see that they're long Apple when really they have a different strategy that requires them to be long Apple alongside short Microsoft. But you never ha get to see that short side because they don't disclose it and they're not required to. Additionally, a second problem with using these filings is that hedge funds are structured in many different ways. And the typical hedge fund structure is that they have one hedge fund and mutual what they call portfolio managers. For example, when you're on Vanguard's site or if you're on any sort of mutual fund company's website, you see they have different mutual fund products. And each product has a different portfolio manager. For example, you may see Vanguard's product for, or let's say Fidelity's product for managing large cap companies. And you might see short cap, small cap companies. But the person in charge of those investments, the head guy in charge, is called the portfolio manager. So just like hedge funds, you have many different portfolio managers. And when a company, a hedge fund, reports its 13F filings, they just combine all of the positions they have. For example, one guy, one portfolio manager might be long Apple, the other might be short Apple. But together, it nets out. So you don't know what each, what each portfolio manager is doing. You just look at the fund in aggregate. So there are two problems with using 13F filings. One is that you don't see the short side, which hedge funds who invest in equities typically have a short side. And secondly, the other issue is that you don't know what strategy they're using. You just see, let's say, a hedge fund owns 1,000 shares of Apple. You might not know that one portfolio manager is long 100,000 shares of Apple. And another portfolio manager is short 99,000 shares of Apple. You just see that they're long 1,000, but you don't realize that they're two different people expressing entirely opposite viewpoints. And oftentimes, hedge funds actually hire portfolio managers who think differently because it helps them out. It creates diversity of thought. It creates diversity just like you would have diversity in your portfolio. A hedge fund wants diversity of portfolio managers. So do not use 13F filings just to completely replicate a portfolio like these sites do. It's very disingenuous. Anyway, moving on. Hedge funds have very different fee structures than mutual funds. And you often report, see in the media that a hedge fund is what we call 2 and 20, or in print you might see 2 forward slash 20. Sometimes you may see 1 and a half 15, 1 and a half forward slash 15. 15. But let's just use 2 and 20 as that's typically the number you see. So what a 2 and 20 fee means is that the first number, 2, is the management fee. This is very similar to a mutual fund. So if you invested a million dollars, you would pay a 2% managed fee of what you invested, just like you would in a mutual fund. In this case, 2% of a million dollars would be $20,000. The second number, 20, is the cut they get based on performance. So you would be paying 2% management fee across the entire year like a mutual fund, but the 20 number is what makes a hedge fund so much different. The 20% is the cut they get based on performance. What I mean by that is, let's say they make 15%, let's say they invested in stocks, they did very well, or they invested in stocks and got short some stocks, and by the end of the year, the hedge fund was up 15%, and you had a million dollars invested with them. 
15% of a million dollars is $150,000. So theoretically, you made $150,000 by investing in this hedge fund. But the 20 means is that they'll get 20% of the 150,000. So it, the 20, the second number, the 20, represents the percent cut the hedge fund gets. So if it's 20%, they get 20% of 150000 which is $30,000. So 2 and 20 is a 2% management fee on what you invested, even if they make money or lose money. And a 20% performance fee is what they shave off the additional money they make. If the hedge fund doesn't make any money or they lose money that year for you, they do not get the performance. They do not get the 20%, but they still get the 2%. So the hedge fund is a pooled investment, like a mutual fund or an index fund, an ETF, and so on. But they use the investor's money and invest in alternative strategies and come up with different creative ways. Their goal is to make money regardless of market conditions while also being uncorrelated to other assets. As This should be the case, as usual. This should always be the case when you're in a mutual fund or an ETF fund that's not an index fund. But oftentimes, you find that that's not the case, that a hedge fund may be very correlated to stocks or may be very correlated to bonds. So there are people out there whose sole job it is, like at a pension fund or an endowment fund, where they interview hedge fund managers to make sure that their process is different and that they're not just replicating the S&P. Because if they were replicating the S&P, why would a pension fund pay 2 and 20? They could just pay 25 basis points or 0.25% on an index fund. Anyway, this is what a hedge fund is. It often has a mystique to it, like hedge fund traders are these brilliant geniuses. But like any profession, you have people who are very good and others who may not be so good. Often I find the media portrays hedge fund managers, especially quants, I was a quant, as these super brilliant mathematicians. And having done that, I can assure you, unless it's high frequency trading, the PhDs and the chess champions that you read about don't really make a difference. In fact, some of the biggest hedge funds use very relatively simple strategies. You don't actually need a PhD, you just need the passion and the drive. So oftentimes you see hedge fund traders, they're just normal people that are incredibly passionate about markets. I mean, think about it. If you spent 80 hours a week studying markets, after a few years, don't you think you would know a ton? And the thing is though, is not all of us want to do that. Some of us may be in other professions, and to us, finance is cool as a hobby, it's good to make sure that we have our finances in check, but it's not what we want to do professionally. Hedge fund traders want to do this professionally. So now that we know what a hedge fund is, we're going to discuss a popular strategy that's being used by the biggest hedge funds out there. The AQR, the Bridgewater, an aggregate, just like the top three quant funds, manage $200 billion or close to it. We're going to do this. We're going to describe the strategy. And it's the basics of the strategy are actually really accessible if you've listened to the other podcasts or maybe you haven't listened, but you've read up and you've been following markets for a while. The point is, is to understand this strategy, we just need to really understand volatility, correlation, and what a stock index or an ETF is. That's it. So get ready because this is going to be a sweet strategy. And it's actually something I'm very familiar with. Uh, I won't get into exactly why, but it's been a very profitable uh, strategy for a lot of hedge funds recently. And we're going to discuss after we go into the strategy why that is and the dangers of this strategy. For example, there's no such thing as a free lunch. You often hear that. A lot of people say nothing is free in life. And so when you have a hedge fund strategy that's performing very well, it's important to understand why and what the caveats are because you often see strategies that perform extremely well and then suddenly collapse. You see that in blowups all the time, like in 07, 08, the tech bubble, everyone had these strategies, made them a ton of money, then suddenly it didn't. So once you understand a strategy, any trading strategy, any investing style, you always have to know the drawbacks and that's where skepticism is important. 
And you know what? Let's just get right into the strategy. You know, I feel like I've actually hyped this quite a bit, but this is something very exciting to me and I just get hyped thinking about it. Okay, so we know a hedge fund takes a non-traditional approach to investing. So do not try what we're discussing at home. There are a lot of caveats to a strategy like this, some of which we'll get into, but making sure this is done right takes a lot of practice. I don't want to be responsible for any execution errors or mishaps uh, or anything else of that nature. This strategy is not guaranteed to make money and in fact could very well lose you money. Anyway, with this very, very scary yet important disclaimer aside, let's move it forward. Woohoo! We're going to discuss a strategy called a risk parity strategy. Actually, the term risk parity is not a strategy, but an allocation method. This simply means an allocation method is just a method to determine how much money you should put in each asset you own. What I mean by that is if you own a stock index fund and a bond index fund, how much should we put in into each different asset? In episode three, we discussed two ways of doing this to determine how much you should allocate to stocks and bonds. One was a simple example of keeping 60% of your cash in stocks and 40% of your cash in bonds. We spoke about how this is naive because this allocation stays the same regardless of other factors. For example, if you are younger, you may be able to take more risk, which will let you be more in stocks traditionally, or that's where the thinking goes. In the same way, a risk parity strategy helps you decide how much to put in each asset. We're going to use the 60-40, 60% stock, 40% bond portfolio as an example of this strategy and use it to compare to a risk parity strategy. And risk parity is a big trend among large hedge funds like AQR and Bridgewater, two of the biggest quantitative hedge funds out there. They use this allocation strategy alongside other trading strategies. They make a few twists to the idea, but at its base core, a lot of how much they put in each asset is determined by risk parity. All right, Rishi, so what is risk parity? Well, it simply means equal volatility weighting of your portfolio. Before you shut off this podcast, I'll actually explain what that means. I can't stand when people define terms using equally difficult terms or phrases, so I won't do that to you. Actually, the worst is when you look up a word in a dictionary, or this, I guess, used to be the case when you had uh, paper dictionaries, where you look up a term, and then it would tell you to reference another term. Now it's digital, so they put links and stuff, but it's still like, okay, why do you have to do that? Why can't you just copy and paste it? Anyway, that aside, so we know how a 60-40 stock bond portfolio is 60% of our cash in stocks and 40% was in bonds? Well, the reason we do that is we generally assume stocks move around a lot more than bonds do. Bonds are assumed to be a bit more stable, traditionally. This is a concept we call volatility and we discussed it in episode five if you wanna brush up on it. We say on average, stocks are more volatile than bonds. Typically, many people measure risk as volatility. Ah, so now we're getting into what risk parity is. Something that moves around a lot could be said to be more risky. So sometimes volatility and risk are said to be synonymous. Some people may argue with that, but the traditional thinking is that's how it goes. So breaking down the term risk parity, we can also replace risk with the term volatility because many people use them as synonyms when they're thinking about investing. So we can say we can translate risk parity to volatility parity. And what does parity mean? Parity means for something to be equal. So using these definitions, we can say risk parity roughly translates to equal volatility. So risk parity literally means equal volatility if you're assuming risk is volatility, which is a basic assumption. When people, when you talk to a financial advisor and they're talking about the riskiness of your portfolio, oftentimes they're talking about the volatility of your portfolio. And if you need to brush up on volatility, it simply means how much something moves to get to where it needs to be. For example, if you make 10%, how much did it move? 
to get to that 10%. Please listen to episode five if you just need a quick brush up or just Google it. If you listen to episode five, just get a quick refresher. Anyway, what does risk parity mean practically? What does equal volatility mean practically? What kind of allocation does that mean? How do we get to that? And if you still don't have an idea of risk parity means, just bear with me through the next example and it'll clear a lot of things up. I know this concept took me quite a bit of time to understand and once you do though, it comes very natural. Like all things in learning, struggling builds a cool grasp of the concept as much as we dislike it, but also kind of makes things fun and rewarding. Anyway, that tangent aside, getting back to what risk parity means practically, a common example of a practical application is you take a 60-40 stock bond portfolio and you measure the volatility of that. When we look at a 60-40 stock bond portfolio, and we look at the volatility of the stocks and bonds and how much volatility they contribute to the overall portfolio. For example, if you had a 60-40 stock bond portfolio, but the price of bonds never changed and stock prices changed, 100% of the volatility of your portfolio would come from stocks because the change in price of your portfolio would be entirely from stocks because bonds aren't moving at all. But looking at a real life example of a 60-40 stock bond portfolio, we actually see 90% of the volatility comes from stocks in the long run, historically. And 10% of the volatility comes from bonds. So that means of your 60-40 portfolio, stocks are really doing 90% of the movement in your 60-40 portfolio. And going forward, we're gonna use a term called cash. This means exactly that. If we say we put 60% of our cash in something, that means we had $1,000 and we would take $600 and invest it in stocks. And then we would take $400 and put that in bonds. So if I say a 60-40 portfolio, I may say 60-40 cash portfolio. And this distinction becomes important when we start talking about leverage, which we'll get to in a second. So we take 60% of our cash, put it in stocks, 40% of our cash and put it in bonds. We know that 90% of the movement of our total portfolio value comes from stocks only 10% will come from bonds historically. Because stocks are said to be higher risk or higher volatility, this is sort of why you see this 90% risk in your portfolio, even if only 60% of your portfolio is cash. So if you put $600 in stocks, to reiterate, and $400 in bonds, you have a 60-40 portfolio, but 90% of the movement is coming from that $600 in stocks. So what risk parity says is that instead of letting stocks take up 90% of the volatility or risk in a portfolio, stocks should make up half of the risk. It should make 50% of the risk and bonds should make the other 50% of the risk. So if 60% cash in stocks results in 90% risk or volatility, how much would we have to scale back our cash allocation of stocks? Well, using those numbers, if we cut back 60% of our cash in stocks to 33%, then stocks would make up 50% of the volatility in the portfolio. What about bonds? Well, since 40% of cash results in 10% risk in bonds, if we multiply our bond position by five, then we can get 50% risk. So if we're in five times the number of bonds we were, then bonds will make up half of the risk in our portfolio. Of course, there's a little bit more of a nuance to this, but this is more of just to explain the concept. Things change a bit when you start playing around with those numbers. But just as a proof of concept or as a very high level approximation, know that to get stocks from 90% of the risk to your portfolio to 50%, you have to scale back. So 60% cash in stocks becomes 33% cash in stocks and 40% cash in bonds becomes 200% cash in bonds because we had to multiply that 40% by five to bring that 10% volatility to 50. So to get 50-50 risk in stocks and bonds, to reiterate, we remove 60% stocks to 33% stocks, 
and 40% bonds to 200% cash. Now the next natural question is, how can we put 200% of our cash in something when we only have 100% cash? It's when people say, give it 110%. It's like, that doesn't make any sense because how can you give more than 100%? Well, in finance, we can borrow money or we can leverage. And that's where hedge fund strategies become important. Remember, we said hedge funds have this tool called, called leverage. They can borrow money. So a hedge fund can actually borrow and multiply their portfolio cash they deal with. So a hedge fund can actually borrow money and invest it, right? So they can take that 40% cash and bonds traditionally, multiply it by five, so 200% of their equity is now in bonds. So once again, this is a concept called leverage, and this is what helps hedge funds do these alternative strategies. So to recap one more time, to take a 60-40 stock bond cash portfolio, which results in 90% risk coming from stocks, 10% risk coming from bonds, and to make that instead 50% of the risk coming from stocks and 50% of the risk coming from bonds, we have to change our allocation to how much we put in stocks and how much we put in bonds. And the allocation change we make is 33% of our cash in stocks and 200% of our cash in bonds. And notice how we're using the volatility of an asset. We're using the volatility of stocks and bonds to determine how much money we put in each. This is a dynamic allocation method. And it's just like 60-40. 60-40 is an allocation method, but risk parity is more dynamic because it changes as conditions change. Now remember, we said risk parity isn't actually a strategy. It just tells you how much to put in stocks or bonds or any asset you want. The strategy tells you what assets to choose, and risk parity tells you how much to put in each asset. So when we're talking about a risk parity strategy, the strategy is saying put money in stocks and bonds, and risk parity is telling us how much to put in stocks and bonds. And let's get down to it. How much would this strategy make versus 60-40 strategy? This is probably what we all want to know. Rishi, you said this strategy performs so well, so prove it. Tell me the numbers. And this is where things get really fun. So a risk parity strategy returned 45% total over the past 12 years. The 60-40 portfolio returned 61%. No, I didn't misspeak. In absolute terms, the 60-40 portfolio made more money than a risk parity portfolio. And for those of you wondering, this isn't assuming reinvesting dividends. Uh, that's a separate topic. And if you want to ask me why I didn't do that, just shoot me an email and I'll explain. But that's a little bit beyond the scope of this current episode. But more importantly, it was just for convenient reasons. It really doesn't change the sort of informational and concept of what we're doing. Anyway, so you may be thinking, Rishi, you said risk parity was really profitable, but I would make less than just putting 60-40 in stocks and bonds. What is wrong with you? Well, here's the key information and why hedge funds can do this better than a 60-40 portfolio. We have to look at how this strategy performed and how it got to their return. We have to look at the volatility of the strategy itself. For example, if we invested $100,000 and doubled our money to $200,000, that's awesome. But what if halfway through that $100,000 turned to 50? Likewise, what if you invested $100,000 and made $150,000 by the end of it, but the lowest your portfolio ever got was $99,000? That sounds like a more safer, calmer, stable bet. Which would you prefer? Now, even if you're being very brash and you're just trying to play devil's advocate, you're like, you know what, Rishi? I only care about the $200,000. I don't care how long it took. I'm investing in the long run. Well, even if you're telling me you like the down 50000 and then finally ending up with 200000 scenario, here's why it's still worse if you're a hedge fund. The risk parity strategy, if you look at the volatility of the strategy, not just the assets, but the actual return stream of the strategy, the volatility of the strategy was 5.5%. 
the volatility of the 60-40 portfolio was 11%, almost double. So what a hedge fund will do is that they will apply even more leverage because investors want a higher return. So to compare apples to apples, a hedge fund may use leverage and double the amount of money they put into the risk parity strategy. So you take that volatility of 5.5% and you double it because you're now putting double your money in this strategy. And now the risk parity strategy has 11% volatility and that's how you compare it to a 60-40. Because remember, risk parity, you want to look at the volatility of these assets, right? So the risk parity strategy, in order to compare it to a 60-40 strategy, you want to look at the volatility. And that's what hedge funds do. So if we want to compare apples to apples, to reiterate, of a risk parity strategy and a 60-40 stock bond strategy, we have to make sure the volatilities are equal because that would be the path how we made our return. So if you apply double the leverage to the risk parity strategy, you not only double the volatility from 5.5% to 11%, but you also double the return. So you know how we said 45%, the risk parity strategy made us 45%? Well, since now we're applying double the leverage, the risk parity made us 90%, and that 90% we can compare to the 61% of the 60-40 portfolio because we're normalizing under volatility. There are a bit more nuances to this strategy, and I realize some of this stuff may not be intuitive, that if you take a strategy and you double it, if you apply double the money, the volatility will be twice as much on your money. We borrowed on that money and we doubled our investment. So our volatility of that money we borrowed on is now 11%. So 90% on risk parity with 11% volatility, 61% on a 60-40 portfolio also with 11 volatility, 11% volatility on average. Now keep in mind these returns are over the past 12 years. So there are a bit more nuances to this strategy that can actually improve the performance of the risk parity, but we'll get to that soon enough in the podcast series. That's a bit beyond the scope of this current episode. Now, if you want to play with this risk parity allocation method, which I think will really help the learning process, I mentioned I created a tool in the beginning of this episode. I created the Tingo Labs initiative, and there is a risk parity tool. So to access it, go to tingo.com, T-I-I-N-G-O.com forward slash labs, and you'll see the link to risk parity. And this tool will let you add as many assets as you want. You can add as many stocks, ETFs, and it'll equal weight each asset. So they're all equal in volatility. So if you had, right now we talk stocks and bonds as two, but if you also added, I don't know, a third asset, let's say gold, which is not an investment by the way, but let's say you wanted to do risk parity, a portfolio of stocks, bonds, and gold. And to reiterate, I do not recommend you invest in gold because it is not an investment. Anyway, let's say you choose those three. A risk parity strategy would allocate 33% to each asset based on the volatility. So 33% of the volatility would come from stocks of your portfolio, 33% would come from bonds, and 33% would come from gold. And this tool lets you do that or as many assets as you want. It's a sweet tool and it'll give you an idea of what to do. Now, a disclaimer, this tool is purely informational. It's off the cuff. In fact, I would not personally trade on it just because that takes a lot more steps in the process. Having a proof of concept is very different than trading on that proof of concept. But the general, but the tool will show you the general gist of the method and how we approach this. So once again, do not trade using this tool. I do not recommend it, but use it to learn how this strategy works. So the next question we have is, Rishi, you promised us you tell us the drawbacks. And let's get into that. This is a very hot topic right now because the biggest quant fund strategies are using this. And we're going to get to why this is such a hot topic. To begin asking ourselves why, we have to think, what conditions are allowing this strategy to perform so well? Is it the economy? Is it government policy? Maybe there are changes in technology. This is where we must always remain skeptical and inquisitive, always asking why, why, why. 
In the case of risk parity, the common explanation of why risk parity portfolios are doing so well is that the bond market is might be the cause of a lot of the returns. In the US, for example, the past 30 years, bonds have done extremely well. See, these bonds of these US treasuries are very safe, and they've never really gone down for an extended period of time like stocks have. And after the 2008 crisis, the Federal Reserve, which sets an interest rate that bonds are affected by, have reduced interest rates. This is why if you've applied for a loan and you look at loan rates today where they were 10 years ago, you may find that interest rates have come down so much. And the Federal Reserve, or Fed, did this to promote credit and boost the economy during the financial crisis in 2008. We'll get into how that works later, but the takeaway is that the Fed, the Federal Reserve policy of setting low rates, like loans and mortgage rates are pretty low right now, have really led to the increase in the price of bonds. So the way bonds work, and we'll be covering bonds more in depth later, is that as the price of bonds go up, the interest rate goes down. We often say this is inversely proportional. So if you're looking at interest rates and they're coming down, it means the price of the bond is going up. Let's say you buy a bond index fund. If interest rates go up, that means the bond index fund will naturally go down. So in episode five, we mentioned how uncertainty can create volatility. Well, when a big government agency that influences rates and really does in a very strong way comes out and says, we're going to keep rates low and we're going to do it for a long time. Well, what happens to uncertainty? A lot of uncertainty gets removed when a government organization says that or a government mandated organization says that. And this in turn removes a lot of volatility from the price of bonds or treasuries. So what we've seen are, in the past few decades, bonds are performing extremely well, and the prices are going up and up and up. And like I said, if you're new to bonds, when prices go up, the rates are coming down. So when the Fed has been keeping rates low and says we're going to do it for a long time, it removes uncertainty, and it also results in an increase in the price of bonds. So what happens in risk parity? In risk parity, because the bond volatility is so low, we apply leverage to increase the volatility in our portfolio to make it equal to the stock portion, for example. And when bonds are doing well, we're putting a lot of leverage in an asset that's doing very well. Think of it back to the 2008 financial crisis. What you found was that the reason the homeowner was affected so deeply is that they were able to put 10% down or even less to buy a house. And when you put 10% down or 20% down, you're using leverage. Just like how uh, hedge funds borrowed money to invest, you're doing the same thing. The bank is letting you borrow money. So if you put 10% down, you're using 10 to 1 leverage. You're putting a, you're levering a thousand times on the equity you put in. For example, if you bought a $100,000 house and you only put $10,000 down, you're levering 10 to 1. You got, for every $1,000 you put in, you got $10,000. And so what happens? If you put 10% down on a $100,000 house, the price of the house drops 10%. It drops $10,000. You just lost all the equity you put in. And the same worry is true of hedge funds. So what you're finding is that a lot of these bigger hedge funds, a lot of these bigger, especially quantitative funds, are using risk parity. And they're levering maybe two to five times of their money into bonds. And because bonds have gone up so much and there's a lot of volatility removed, this leverage constantly goes up and up and up. And the question is, is a lot of people in the, house, in the financial housing crisis didn't think the price of houses could fall down that quickly. And the concern is, what if the price of bonds 
falls down that quickly, right? Because right now the American economy is doing much better, unemployment is below 6%, and there's serious discussions that the Federal Reserve is going to increase interest rates. And if they increase rates, remember the price of bonds fall. So if the price of bonds fall really quickly, what we saw happen to the homeowner in 2008 could happen to hedge funds. And the biggest quantitative hedge funds, maybe the top few, managed $200 billion. And imagine the billions that will get wiped out if a hedge fund's lever two or three times and they just lose a ton of money. Now, here's what makes this worse. Whereas the homeowner, a 10% drop if they had a 10% down payment, let's say they had $10,000 in a $100,000 house. If the house fell 10%, they'd be wiped out. With a hedge fund though, is that if a hedge fund falls 20%, what you'll typically find is investors just get scared and pull out all of their money. So you can have what's called a run on these funds. And this also happened in 2008, where people just sold and pulled money. Think about a lot of people. You know, Maybe you did that with your mutual funds or index funds in 2008. Maybe you just pulled a ton of money out because it dropped so much. Same thing is true for hedge funds. So if a hedge fund is down 20% even, they may actually end up, a ton of big investors may pull out all of their money. So if they, if they had $200 billion under management and they lost $40 billion, a ton of investors might pull out money. And what happens when investors pull out money? This hedge fund needs to sell more and more and more, and this creates a panic effect. And what happens in this panic effect? Now, hedge funds are smart, and they realize this is a problem that 2008 happened, and what if the same thing happens to them? And so a lot of these quantitative hedge funds, a lot of these big funds, have tried to take steps where they think they're appropriate. And I'm not going to comment on whether I think they're appropriate, at least not publicly, but if you want to have that discussion, shoot me an email. The caveat though to all this is that leverage needs to be used appropriately and we have to recognize the risks of using leverage, whether it's putting a 10% down payment or 20% down payment on a house, or whether it's borrowing money to invest in bonds. Now, keep in mind, I know I said bonds have done well in the past 20 or 30 years, but also stocks have done very well in the past six years. So this is adding even more into the risk parity effect. More people are coming into this. And the goal of this thought process is that Anytime you see a strategy giving you a ton of good performance or a ton of good numbers, always ask yourself why. Why does this opportunity exist? Is there a reason other people aren't doing this? Is there a reason that this is making money? And in this case, many people think it's because government mandated policy. But maybe there's a reason this strategy works and maybe you feel comfortable with the reasons why it works, but maybe you don't feel comfortable. That's a decision you have to make. Either way, I know this podcast episode was a lot to take in. And if you have to repeat a few parts, I apologize. As we get into these more advanced topics, there may be a couple things, and I'll try my best. I'll make tools. I'll try everything to do to help. But ultimately, as we get into more and more topics, it's going to require a little bit more active engagement. And I'm trying my best. I plan a lot of time into these talks. So if you think I can be doing a better job, or if you think I can say things in a different way, or maybe you like something, well, I would love it if you could share your feedback with me. Email me at rishi at tingo.com. That's R-I-S-H-I at T-I-I-N-G-O. I take feedback very seriously. I usually respond to people very quickly. Or if you have a question that you want to ask me one-on-one, maybe you don't want me to put in a podcast or a QA episode, let me know and I'll take the time to personally answer. I spend a lot of my time doing that. My goal is to actively help. And if you like the Tingo project, you like the app, you like what's going on, I ask that you pay what you can. Uh, The site is tiingo.com forward slash support. Don't pay if you don't feel like it, but I hope you find value. And if you do want to pay, it helps keep the mission going, helps keep the idea going and this ecosystem going. Anyway, it's been a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Take care all, and I can't wait to hear your feedback.